0: realized that my relationship with alcohol was always going to be unhealthy and I was done trying to figure it out and trying to crack the code. And knowing that I am a better person, I show up as a better mom, as a better friend, as a better employee when I'm just authentic and I don't have substances inside of me.
1: Welcome back to an all new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Yay.
2: Yay. Hey, everybody. All right, Heidi here. As dry January comes to an end, we are excited to bring on Michelle Smith, aka at Recovery is the New Black. She is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, and the founder of Recovery is the New Black, a digital community for women living or exploring an alcohol-free life. Jamie, Megan, and I first met Michelle on our off-the-gram live girls' trip to Nashville, and after hearing her story, we couldn't think of a more perfect guest to close out Dry January. Michelle struggled for years with alcohol addiction while the, quote, mommy juice drinking culture helped her self-destruct as she drank to escape the stresses of life. Since getting sober in 2016, Michelle integrates both her personal experience in recovery and professional experience as a mental health and addiction advocate towards normalizing sobriety in our boozy culture. Michelle's work has been featured on the Today Show, TEDx, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Scary Mommy, NBC, ABC, and more.
3: Listen to this show if you or a loved one struggles with addiction or staying sober. You can't imagine life without your evening cocktail, you have decided that you no longer want to rely on anything external to numb the sharp edges of your life.
0: Welcome to the show, Michelle. Yay. I'm so excited to finally see you guys again. It's been forever. Thank you for having me. Yes. We are so thrilled to have you here with us
2: today. Jamie, Megan, and I so enjoyed getting to know you on our off-the-gram live girls trip to Nashville and hearing pieces of your story. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with your amazing work, can you please give us the broad strokes of what you do?
0: Yes, I am by day an addictions counselor. And I now work virtually with women who have a desire to either look at their relationship with alcohol and possibly test drive sobriety and see if long term recovery is something that they're interested in pursuing for a lifetime. And so I work with a lot of moms, especially that are just feeling overwhelmed and depleted, and insert a lot of messaging from mommy wine culture that has really taken a hold of women, especially in their most vulnerable season of life, and just give them more options and more alternatives for healthy coping. I like to say it's like this normalizing sobriety in a really boozy culture.
3: I love that. So this is Jamie. And Michelle, as you know, because we've spoken about it before, I'm someone who's very familiar with what we call spiritual recovery circles. And we talk a lot about hitting rock bottom over there. And and I actually shared about it on Instagram just today. I was sharing about a time that I remembered when I literally couldn't really get myself out of my apartment for about one calendar year. I was just stuck up in there and it was just the darkest moment of my own life. I call that the gift of desperation, you know, cause we kind of do have to hit bottom. So I know it's of course painful for us to reflect on, but because it's the impetus for us to kind of turn our lives around, Would you kind of share a little bit about your bottom and what drove you towards recovery and then towards wanting to share that with others?
0: Absolutely. You know, I think our bottom, we talk about this a lot, is basically where we stop digging. And I think that there's this elevator to like rock bottom. And it's really important for people to remember that they can get off at any floor towards rock bottom. But for me, I kind of call it mortality motivation. I ended up in the hospital after four alcohol fatal poisoning And, you know, I want to say that, geez, after the fourth time of waking up in the hospital with Child Protective Services, that this would be your bottom, Michelle. If this isn't it, I don't know necessarily what else is left for you. And it wasn't my bottom. It was literally from me noticing that my relationship with alcohol after my second child was starting to become problematic all the way until I tried every intervention, until I went to inpatient treatment. I was finally ready. Every every message that I heard, regardless of what treatment program or what treatment modality there was, it was the same message. But at six, seven years into it, I was finally ready to... I realized that my relationship with alcohol was always going to be unhealthy. And I was done trying to figure it out and trying to crack the code. And knowing that I am a better person, I show up as a better mom, as a better friend, as a better employee... When I'm just authentic and I don't have substances inside of me. And so I really try to share that message that you can really stop or at least take a look at your relationship with any substance at any period of time when you know that you're not showing up as the best version of yourself. Because we know it's never really about the painkiller, quote unquote, that we're using, whether it's, you know, gambling or alcohol or pills it's about the inside, what is it that's leading us to this external coping tool to this internal problem?
1: Michelle, I'm fascinated by all this because I'll be honest, I'm somebody who loves a cocktail. I love a glass of wine. And you did absolutely open my eyes up to this mommy culture of like, it's mommy juice. It's mommy timeout. Like there's, I think there's wine named mommy timeout. I feel all that. But can you get me to rock bottom? How does it go from you know, having a glass of wine with dinner or socially drinking to winding up in a hospital. Like, did you have other addictive tendencies prior to this? Did you have, you know, emotional issues that you were trying to work through and this became the medication? Like, how do I know if my friends are in trouble and they're on this path? Like, can you talk me through that? Because I am somebody who doesn't struggle with alcohol abuse. And alcohol is all around us. I just want to understand how you get to that hospital bed.
0: I get it. I was I was flabbergasted as well. I, I didn't understand. And before I had children, to be completely honest, I never drank. I had the perfect example of what not to be. Because I grew up with a really large family of, you know, Catholics and, you know, physicians that were complete alcoholics, it was everywhere. So I intentionally stayed away from it because I didn't want that to be my reality. And I knew that that was possible. And so I waited until I was in my mid thirties until I started dipping my toes into alcohol. And for me, it was what you're describing, where it was just every once in a while, I'm gonna have a cocktail. And let me tell you, the way that that mimosa at noon hit me postpartum was absolutely amazing. The feeling that I felt just for that noise to quiet down, even for just 10 minutes, felt like I was teleported to some tropical island that felt amazing. And it went on like that for a small period of time. It was this, you know, I'm I'm breastfeeding, so I can't really drink a lot. Right. And then the messages of Michelle, you deserve this pump and dump. Or your mom just died. You're starting to go through a lot of really hardships. My mom died when I was learning to become a mom. My husband deployed to war. I was undiagnosed with postpartum depression, not realizing that I was self-medicating with alcohol because it felt so good. And the thing that people didn't notice, I would leave happy hour or brunch and I knew that I was going home to two toddlers being complete toddlers And I would stop at the store and get a bottle of wine for later. And those trips that I would make, and those, you know, I would have one or two, but I couldn't wait to have more. And over time, that progression, that tolerance, the dependency, I was slowly not using my other tools like reaching out to friends, going to yoga, you know, the things that brought me joy. This was easier, it was accessible. It was convenient, and it did what I needed it to do,
1: but sometimes I think too, friends are probably part of the problem, like because it normalizes that play date. the kids are playing, and we're just gonna crack open the mommy juice, right? I'm sure that's a lot of what you're, you're working with even in your business is Absolutely. seeing that this mom's normalizing, you know happy hour cocktails, lunch drinks. It's okay. we we'll have two cocktails, and then we'll go do pickup, yep,. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I always say it's all fun and games and it's all glitz and glamour like this, like sex in the city scene until you can't stop drinking it. And it's so true, but it's fun and it's relatable and it's silly and it's a way that we can just decompress and just chill out and have a really good time. But over time, it's those conversations don't have a lot of substance. For me, it was talking, you know, complaining about how hard motherhood is, and it's easier when we're drinking, and, you know, our husbands didn't do this or that, and our kids are up to this. And I think modern day motherhood, just the example that we have, we set this expectation for ourselves that is completely unrealistic. That's truly what I believe. We can't live this Pinterest lifestyle. We're expected to work. And I felt like a horrible mom, and I felt like a horrible mom because I had three jobs, and I felt like I was just. I'm not Elastigirl. I felt like I was being pulled from every angle and I always was falling short and felt depleted and felt unworthy. And I wasn't living up to my idea of how I had dreamed my my role as a mother would be.
1: Okay. I, I have so many questions around this. I, like, I can't stop myself because it's like so fascinating to me because I'm somebody who has, has an addictive personality, struggle with an eating disorder, but I don't struggle with alcohol abuse. Was this like overnight that you found yourself? Like, what was the trajectory of this demise?
0: You know, it it wasn't just an overnight thing. I noticed when my husband came to me about six months into me really starting to enjoy those drinks and then slowly grabbing a bottle of wine that would for a while sit on the kitchen counter with a cork in it. And towards the end, I, I don't understand how anybody can do that. It would be gone. but. I remember waking up and my husband would say, hey, babe, we need to talk. Do you remember what happened last night? And my role of a mother of tucking the kiddos in and them not getting a bath. And he worked nightside when he got home from deployment. And those small conversations of, do you remember what happened? Do we need to have a conversation? And that's where we started going to the third door of moderation. Um, Let's only drink on weekends. Let's switch the alcohol. Let's measure the alcohol which is complete insanity but it was something I had to go through to make sure that can I really keep alcohol in my life or can I not so it was small conversations and friends that were concerned or friends would say hey I'd love to go to the farmers market and get coffee well why aren't we going to go have a cocktail you know and I didn't think about that they were you know here's a podcast I would really love for you to listen to, this has been really helpful for me. Let me know how it works for you, if it resonates at all. So there was little nuggets and little breadcrumbs that were being left, but I was still so chemically addicted and I wanted, I needed this best friend of mine that was Vino. And I was in that place of denial and very resentful for anybody who was trying to offer any type of support. But you know what? The first people I went back to, were those people that were not going to co-sign on my self-destructive behavior? And so, you know, to answer your question, it it just, it was progressive. And it's so hard to see when you're in something like that. Like some people can relate to shopping, like you said, an eating disorder. It's really baffling when you haven't firsthand experienced it or you, you're, you one of your loved ones is really struggling and going through it.
2: Yeah, I think that Megan brings up a great point about the addict brain versus the non-addict brain, right? Or like an addictive personality, as you put it, Megs, versus a non-addictive personality. I'm somebody who's studied this a lot because it affects so many people in my life and full transparency. I do not have an addict brain. I do not have an addictive personality. And like for me, when I was in my 20s and I was starting yoga, like I went out drinking one night and the next morning my yoga practice sucked. And I was like, I'm not doing that again. And I literally didn't drink for a decade. Cause like for me, the yoga was more powerful. Like the feeling from yoga was much more powerful to me than the drink was, but I totally understand. And I hope that people listening understand that there's a lot of science behind brains work differently and some people can do that. And some people can't. And I'd love to hear from both Jamie and Michelle about that because just, you have so much knowledge about it. But I also want to circle back to another thing that Megan brought up, which is like the whole idea of like the mommy juice and the mommy culture with drinking. And like, so i mentioned I didn't drink for a decade. It's Heidi talking for anyone who can't see. And I was trying to get pregnant with my twins. And one of my doctors was like, well, you need a glass of wine at night to relax. That's why you're not getting pregnant. It's because you're too wound up and like wine's going to help you. And then like, and then I got pregnant and then I stopped drinking again. I mean, I was like having like, I was like, really, I need this glass of wine to get pregnant. That sounds weird. But you know, I did what the medical professional said. And it's funny because there's a story about my grandma who had five kids and the doctor said to her like, well, Priscilla, you should really just like have a, a drink at night. And she thought, well, if I can have one, why can't I have two? And like, and I think that's sort of this culture that we've created, right? It's like mothering is hard. We all know it. Like it's all, it sounds like you had a perfect storm in your story and so many awful things were happening at once. And, you know, the idea of sort of quieting any of it and like reducing a little of the stress was, would be so attractive to anyone. So I guess with all of this, what I'm trying to get at is like with drinking so normalized in our society, like what alternatives do you offer up to moms in like your programs or your friends or whatever? for you know this society normalized nightly glass of wine or cocktail like what else
0: can moms do like yes you know one thing that is a perfect opportunity right now is dry january opportunities that are challenges that society has already stamped an approval on Instead of saying, oh, you know, I'm I'm on antibiotics or I'm taking a break or whatever the case may be, I want to be the designated driver. We get to be really honest and say, you know what? I'm feeling that this isn't serving me. It's holding me back from the races. I have bloat. I want to compete. Like really look at your relationship with alcohol and does it really add value to my life? And if it does, how is that doing that? And what else can you utilize that may give a similar result? And I think it's really important that we don't have confidence when we want to do something, when it comes to sobriety, it's, it's, it's the synthetic confidence, right? It's that, you know, liquid courage that gives us the strength to say, no, thanks. Or, you know, I'll go to this event that I don't really want to go to. Right. But Drive January gives us that opportunity to be honest and just say, I'm going to take a break. I always call it test drive sobriety to see if it's something that I can do and how it makes me feel because it takes days. It takes months, 30 days plus to get and flush this stuff out of our system to really give ourselves an opportunity to cleanse and to really feel And the interesting part of challenges like this is that if you stick to a goal and you find yourself struggling to keep your promise to yourself, that's information about your relationship with alcohol. If you're starting to itch at day seven and you're just like, I don't think I can do this, why can't you do this? And that gives you information about what you want to do moving forward. And I'm sure, Jamie, you have something that you can add to that as well.
3: Well, I just think that's so helpful and it's such a great way to look at it. I think dry January as a test run is a really great piece of advice. You know, oftentimes we'll tell people, you know, just try for for 30 days or just do a 90 and 90. And, and it's like, if that is so, so, so challenging to cease drinking for 30 days or even for a quarter, maybe that is indicative of a bit of a disordered relationship with alcohol. Like perhaps and it's really interesting information. So I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of shift gears here because here's the thing: I definitely differ from Heidi and Megan. I needed a cocktail when I was four years old. <laughs> I was fully born an addict and alcoholic and very much owned that and was pretty comfortable owning that. I came in pretty ready to admit my powerlessness because it was pretty apparent to everybody who was around me. However, Even insofar as my mother and my family wanted me to get sober, when I came home talking about all things sobriety and I had this new language that had to do with spirituality and a higher power, they were super duper uncomfortable, just as uncomfortable as they would have been if I was talking about like weird dark nightlife things that they also weren't comfortable hearing about. So I had this new part of my life that in my mind's eye was very positive and I didn't understand why it was so disarming to them. So my question to you, Michelle, is I've always been comfortable being kind of open and out with my sobriety, But I think we have to almost, it's an interesting thing. Sometimes we have to tread lightly or sometimes we, sometimes we're not comfortable letting the people that we know in on that part of our life, or maybe it's a new dating relationship or a new friendship, or you don't want to be judged by the mommy group. So what is your opinion on kind of outing yourself or speaking your truth or sharing it on social media? How do you kind of account for that? And how does it work for you?
0: Yes, you know, every person is going to differ on their experience and what their comfort level is, especially what their current relationship is. With a substance. But you know, my my go-to is always tell one person, like your TED talk. You know, it's that just tell one person, one accountability buddy. It doesn't matter who it is, it can be a trusted professional, like a therapist or your doctor, until you feel comfortable telling somebody in your social circle and natural support. So just to say it and to practice that. Also to get into a Facebook group or an anonymous community where you are more surrounded around people who either get it are going through it or who have a lot of experience because we would want our natural supports to understand, but they maybe their their support's gonna look different than somebody who really understands it because we're already struggling with whether or not we struggle with a substance. So of course we want to hear, oh, you don't have a problem. Just only drink one or two. Just stop. Yeah, I wish I could. So I need to surround myself around people who kind of wish they could, but they can't either, and really start to problem solve and like just brainstorm. Why am I this? Why do, why do I have to have this thing? Because we're grieving it. It is going through the entire grief cycle of I'm losing. Sometimes people like I did, my best friend. It was there for me through everything, the good and the bad. So just finding your community of people or just one person who you can just practice refusal skills with, who can offer alternatives instead of drinking, what can you go do so that you do have ideas and you have accountability and support.
2: I love that. And that also helps so much with. um, I really wanted to ask before we get to all the positive, good stuff about dry January and stuff. I really wanted to ask Heidi here about sort of relapse, right? Because I think that everyone who has loved ones who struggle with an addiction, that's sort of the biggest fear, right? Because if you've ever been to anything that revolves around 12 steps or recovery, one of the first things you hear is relapse is part of recovery. And I think that really strikes fear in people who aren't the person who's recovering. And, you know, addiction is a cunning disease with so many faces. And I think loved ones just feel powerless often because they can sometimes spot the relapses coming like well before the first sip or pill is popped or any of that stuff. So what advice do you have for people who might have a loved one who's struggling? Like, if there's flags or signs are there any measures that anyone else can take if they see a relapse coming or is it truly only within the person who's struggling's power to decide to change the course i mean like i think there's that saying like you can't force somebody to get help for a reason can someone watching help or is it just not it's it have to come from the inside
0: i mean i agree with the latter of that i think you know essentially it's the person's decision of whether or not this is serving them because I had all those consequences. I had child protective services. I lost my jobs. Everything that happened, I still laid in that hospital bed so desperately wanting to never pick up again. And I did. It was baffling, confusing, destructive. I was suicidal. All of the things. I have the perfect life. Everything that I've worked so hard for, I have. And now all I want to do is escape it, right? And so it's the person. It's within them. And their relationship with that substance, have they had enough? Are they sick and tired? And committing to knowing that this is my thing. This leaves endless possibilities of things I can do, but Michelle can't drink. And I'm far from alone in that. But I do believe that for the other people who are loving or supporting somebody who has an addiction, relapses, or is just really on the cusp of it becoming a dependent, like a dependency of some type, is that... I don't feel that people should co-sign. I think people should be able to say, hey, I love you. And I see that you've been drinking more. And I know that your your friend just passed away. Is there something I can do to offer some support? Or silently provide a podcast and send it to them. Send them a book on Amazon. Invite them out, but not where the prominent establishment is serving alcohol. Right. So there's little tips and tricks and ways that we can go around supporting somebody, depending on how open they are. But we absolutely, as bystanders, see people self-destructing in the middle of their addiction and they're in denial. They'll protect it. And we can only do so much, right? We can just say, I love you enough that I'm not gonna leave you a home with the kids because I don't trust that they're going to be safe. And we're gonna do whatever we're gonna do in our addiction. Um, But first and foremost, it's about boundaries, taking care of yourself. Do we need Al-Anon? Do we need to go to therapy? Because we need to learn boundaries and way to take care of ourselves while the person that we love is trying to learn how to take care of themselves as well.
3: And can I just say something here really quick? Because I just, I, it's such a good question, Heidi, and it's such a loaded question. I'm sure you'll agree, Michelle, because it's like, here's what I just want people out there to understand Addicts and alcoholics are not, you know, bad people trying to get good. They are sick people trying to get well. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really hard for outside people to understand, it's like you're telling us you had this perfect life, and there you sat in the hospital bed time after time with child protective services. Any normie, meaning a normal person who has a normal relationship with alcohol, would say, "Well, that oh my god, well just don't do that again." Like it's like, yeah, duh, Jerry, we get it. Yeah, like obviously, oh, right. like I, I would told the, the story about the yoga, right?
2: Because it's so yeah. different.
3: Yeah. No, totally. And so it's very hard. And and I always use this likening. I don't understand how somebody with a gambling addiction I don't, I don't get it. I don't get how like you could gamble away your kid's college fund because I'm not compelled to gamble. So that's very, very elusive to me. I'm like, what, what is that? But I know it is an addiction. I know it is true. And for that same reason, I understand that my mother, for instance, probably could not understand how after I imploded my life six or seven times, I would pick up drugs again. But nevertheless, I did. And I met people in inpatient recovery a girl that had just had a baby and she found herself drinking um, a mouthwash, you know, because it has alcohol in it and this poor thing. And she was just, and she dropped her baby. And I mean, this girl was beside herself. She just, She just wanted to die. She felt like the most horrible person in the world and she's not a horrible person. And that is what I need people to understand is that biological connection that you have with your baby, alcoholism is even stronger than that. And that is literally the strongest connection that God gave us, is our biological connection to our children. That's how strong addiction is. So it's very, very difficult. And I think it's interesting, Heidi's question, because when you do approach somebody in the midst of a drinking problem, you're either going to catch them, as you said, Michelle, in the middle of their denial, Mm -hmm. protecting their disease, or you might catch them at that moment where the door is open because they're just like, oh my God, someone help. And you never know, but it is worth, I think, throwing up that flag rather than just, you know, la, 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 sticking your head in the sand like an ostrich, being like, I don't see it. Everything's fine. And I would also,
1: it's so, Jim, I, sorry to interrupt, but I think this is another yeah. piece of it is that I had a friend, a gym buddy, who would still get up at five o'clock in the morning, work out with me every day. I was shocked. To learn that she had a problem with alcohol because I knew her at the gym. She was still waking up at 5 a.m. I know my friends socially. So we don't always know what's happening when we're not with our friends. And that's the thing that I'm oh like I'm always questioning. Well, what is it like? You know, it's it is Friday night and we're all gonna have a glass of wine. It's not a problem for me. Is it a problem for anybody else? Like what happens after this drink or when they go home or Right. Like, how is she waking up at 5 a.m. to be at Orange Theory with me if she had just had six bottles of wine? Like, how is that happening? And I think that it's such a secretive disease. And that's what fe- I'm I'm so fearful of some of the women in my life because I just don't know.
2: Aren't they called like high functioning? It's like high functioning. is there's a term, right? Yes. That's, it's yeah. high
0: functioning, an addict, a high functioning addict. And, you know, mm-hmm. I did that for for several years. Absolutely. I did the same thing. I hit the gym and we're justifying as long I'm earning this, this is my reward. I'm showing up at orange theory and not, this might not necessarily be a friend of yours, but I did this. And it's like, as long as I drink my celery juice and I take my multivitamin, you know, I I'm good. I I've earned that bottle of wine for that night. But when we, we build a tolerance, right? It's always going to get to be more. We're going we're greedy creatures. We want more. We want to constantly feel good. And you can only keep that facade up for so long, really, before it crosses over into another addiction. Or we see that Michelle stops going to the gym so often. But the thing is, is that we—it's not our fault for people who are struggling. What we can do is always be mindful, like we do with—I have a girlfriend that's a vegan. I have a friend that has celiac disease, so everything has to be certified gluten-free. Nobody bats an eye about having to get a special cupcake. Or making a special meal, right? Why are we not doing that as a society with alcohol? Have mimosas, but just don't mix everything or sangria. Have alternatives. Have some LaCroix. Have some bubbly water. Make some delicious, you know, punch for everybody from, you know, people who are in recovery to kiddos to grandparents to pregnant women. There are so many people who will choose not to pick that alcoholic beverage if it's an option. But to raise their hand in a culture that tells us that you're either a normie or you're an alcoholic and there's not this spectrum of this whole, which is cool, the sober curious movement of for the health of it. I'm going to pass today because if I can't, if I'm driving and I can only have one, that's a tease. I'd rather not have any at all. And so I think providing opportunities to have conversations like we're having now and a conversation starter is having options in the cooler when we're going to the river that aren't all truly right. So just creating space and being mindful and just paying attention sometimes. Um, And, you know, again, that doesn't mean that we're going to stop somebody in the midst of an addiction, but it also is just providing an opportunity for awareness and prevention at the same
1: time. So, Michelle, time. can you, as an addiction counselor, can you share with us like what are a couple of those red flags? If we are concerned about a mom friend who we really only see socially and don't really know the complete picture,
0: like what are our watchouts? Like, how do we know if someone's struggling? I would notice their behavior. Are they always picking places because that mimosa is on special or because there's alcohol involved in that? That's one sign right there is every time you meet with your girlfriend, is it focused around alcohol? And if I take the position of being the decision maker and I intentionally pick a place that's not going to be where we're going to drink I'm curious to see if she's going to cancel on me or if she wants to change the plans, right? Just kind of mix it up a little bit and see what happens or not have an opportunity where you have her over and serving her alcohol isn't, isn't an option. Oh, I ran out. I have this to offer you. And just see what she does, what she says, and how she chooses to respond to that. That would be my first go-to is just an awareness piece on our behalf. like that.
1: So dry January is sort of wrapping up and I'll, I have to be honest, I've done dry January in the past. And like, I will say like, I'm like, oh man, like I wanted it to be like farting rainbows by the end of this month. I'm like, I didn't lose any weight. I don't really feel any different or any better. It wasn't that hard. Uh, I liked the idea of moist January, except the word moist is gross. So a lot of people are calling it <laughs> damp January. Um, and like, I'm some, I'm somebody who will subscribe to damp January and, and, you know, like what is damp January? I don't know what I mean. So it's Sorry. like, instead of, cause I'm not somebody. So because I of, of my addictive background, I don't like things that are all or nothing. And I think that's why dry Jan, January simply just doesn't work for me. Cause it feels too all or nothing. And I like to live, in the gray area that i make a little bit more colorful but damp january is drinking i think it everybody kind of makes their own rules about it but drinking significantly less than you typically would for me that means you know i wouldn't have a drink during the week um even if i was at a social event i'd kind of just say pass
2: you know, Got it. What, so like December uh, is like flood December or something.
1: Yeah. Is that, yeah. Like, that's, like, I think like, there's, yeah. Like, okay. like the December, I can't remember. De- into moist January and moist is just a gross <laughs> word. May no one use that word to describe <laughs> anything ever. Um, but like, so talk us through it. Like the whole dry January thing just didn't make any sense to me because it felt so restrictive almost. And I'm not somebody who likes to restrict anything, but you were saying it's great for sober curious. Like what are the benefits? Like I didn't lose any weight. I didn't feel any more energized. I was still Megan, but what are the benefits?
0: Right. And we have this expectation that we're going to come out and be magical unicorns. It's just like a diet. You know, I don't, I don't get it. If I, if I don't like brownies, I don't like French fries like that, you know? So it's like everyone has their thing, but when you when you force an adult to make a decision that's saying, I can't have alcohol for 31 days, you automatically get defensive and it feels restrictive. And then it's like, I don't want to feel deprived. Well, screw this. If I have to follow these rules, I don't want to. So we have these expectations of outcomes that we set. And if we don't start to see those results, it's just like if I were to tell you in 12 weeks, if you followed my fitness program and I told you, you were going to lose 12 pounds, would you do it? Would you stay committed? Probably, right? So Maybe. So it's like with dry January, you're asking about the benefits. It sounds like you didn't see them, so that you were just like, well, forget it then, right? If I'm not going to well, see the also, benefits, Michelle, I the just don't like
1: rules, I have to say. Right. Like, like rules right. are hard for me, right? Like, <laughs> then, but you know what? It was a good litmus yeah. test for me. I don't have
3: a problem. Yeah. But Meanwhile,
1: if- I think Jamie and I thrive on rules.
2: Yes. So I don't know.
3: At least I do. I can say I do. Well, I also like a challenge. Yeah. Like, I like to, like Check days off on a calendar. I like to count things. Like, I'm just a weirdo yeah. with lists. So, I like only sort of like a 30 day challenge around anything. But I think it's also interesting, Megan, to assess at the end how you feel. And like, it's a fair assessment. Like, and maybe, yeah, maybe it told you something about your drinking that is just not really problematic. I I have to imagine a lot of other people had a very different experience. Well,
1: I love that. the idea that it is a litmus test, right? Like, if that is a, like, if you're like by Wednesday, how am I going to get through this week? Like, okay, that's a nice red flag. Like that's a really great test.
0: Right. And that's why things like this, these challenges aren't, they're not for people that have an alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder. You know, there's other programming and tools that they can use. This is more for people like you that are just, you know, sober, curious, wanting to cleanse, wanting to see if they can do it, set up for the challenge. And it gives you information. You've gained some insight that, you know what. I don't feel like it's problematic. It was more restrictive. I don't like rules. I I'm still beautiful and have clear skin and I love to have a great time with or without a cocktail. Boom, boom, I'm done. Right. It's not for me. You did it, you know, and that's okay. So everyone, like Jamie said, everyone's going to have a different experience with it. Some are going to be like, oh my gosh, let's roll this into February. I know people that have gone decades now because almost decades because they've tried Dry January, and we're just like, I like how I feel, and I do see benefits like clear skin and insight and money in their pocketbook they didn't have before. So there's it's such a personal decision um, that there is no right or wrong answer. I just love that it's an opportunity for society to normalize it and to give a little bit more education and awareness into how this substance does become really addictive and does have the ability to really self-destruct and take down families and homes and marriages and lives because it's a real thing.
3: So for people who are maybe, obviously we're rounding the corner on January, but maybe somebody's like, you know what? I kind of miss the boat on this. I'm going to give it a shot in February. Can you give our listeners just some tips on what a successful dry January or even dry February could look like? If somebody's looking for, because like I know about, you know, completely going balls to the wall or abstinence. But for people who are trying, just trying this out, maybe trying some tools and techniques. And of course, you have your great journal. Maybe you could share about that a little bit as well. What are some things that people could do for a successful dry month, uh, just for like a little test? Yes,
0: absolutely. Well, I'll preface it with everybody's idea of success looks different, right? So maybe it's to lose weight. Maybe it's to go the whole time. Maybe it's just, you know, to do whatever. So it's success is going to look like whatever it is that you create as a benchmark and, you know, a placeholder for how you get through that month. And so, you know, if you want to stay substance free throughout the whole entire month, journaling, that's a great thing to do because what you're doing is you're tracking, When was I feeling triggered? If I did have a drink, why did I have that? How did I feel during it? How did I feel after it? It gives you information and insight. A lot of people that struggle with alcohol tally and count their mistakes, but they don't count their victories. And victories and success could be, oh, I declined a drink and that was really hard, but I did it. It was, you know, another one is I set a boundary with somebody and I didn't drink even though I really wanted to because I'm not really a boundary setter. I'm a people pleaser and a yes, ma'am. So all of our successful bench points are going to look different. But I think it's really cool to be able to set a couple of them, you know, see how you feel and then reflect back. Does that match up with what your intentions were going into it? Because if your needs aren't being met, you're not going to do dry February and March and April and May. So, you know, I think the awareness piece and setting those benchmarks are important And yeah, the journal, you know, I think it's really important for us to reflect on our life with anything, whether it's a food journal or, you know, an entrepreneur goal list, it's just having a place to brain dump your thoughts and your feelings and your goals. It just really gives you an opportunity to look back and say, yeah, I might've drank two times out of 31 days, but that's success because before I couldn't go 48 hours or seven days without a drink. So there's no such thing as a perfect way to measure success. We get to set that for ourselves and what that looks like. And I think it's really important to reward ourselves when we do do something. Look how much money I put in my mason jar. I'm going to go buy some new headphones or some new walking shoes or some non-alcoholic drink. You know, it's fun to see that I actually have more money for my college fund for my kids now, instead of spending it on alcohol or bailing myself out of jail. (laughs) You know, it's like, there's a lot of opportunity financially that really gets put back into the family's pocketbook as well. I think that's amazing. <laughs> I mean,
2: just, just so many great tips, so much insight. Thank you so much. I think now our listeners really have some good, like go forth and try this out tips. And so with that, ladies, should we take it to our last segment? Sure. Next, what's it called? Karma uh, call. <laughs> So, Michelle, you know, I force Megan to say it because she does it with so much enthusiasm. But being the resident yogi, I will say that karma is the Sanskrit word for action. So, we ask all of our amazing guests what is one small actionable item that would yield a large result if they tried it for a short period of time?
0: Not drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. <Yeah. laughs> yep. Doesn't get my. It,
3: it could be as simple as that. Just give it a shot, right? Absolutely love that. I can't thank you enough for being here. I know our listeners got a lot out of it. I know I did as well. Um, I want to ask if you could share with everybody where they can find you, where they can kind of follow you on Instagram, and also get any of your resources that you absolutely.
0: Offer. So my handle and my website, all my social media platforms are at Recovery Is the New Black. And I have, yes, just had a book that came out, Living Sober, Living Free. It's a journal for women who want to stop drinking. And so it's great for anybody. I mean, even if you're just sober, curious all the way to long-term recovery, it's just really cool. It's a really awesome resource to be able to just reflect on, you know, and sometimes going back to the basics and keeping things simple, especially with hardships and anniversaries and holidays of just being able to, again, reflect. So yeah, that's where you guys can find me and just to keep having the conversations that matter around, you know, people with alcohol use disorder, because it's important. And I think we can all, we can all be part of the solution. Amen. My friend, thank you
3: for being here with us, Michelle. Thank you everybody at home for joining us and listening along. Don't forget to follow us on the gram. We are off the gram podcast over there. And don't forget to subscribe to the show anywhere the podcast can be consumed. So you never miss an episode. We'll see you next time. Yay. Yay.